Uh, Tamaria, welcome to First Up. It is Rapa. That's Wednesday, the 29th of June. Kornathan Rarere Aho. Coming up, the bodies of at least 46 migrants have been found in the back of a truck in San Antonio, Texas. We'll have the latest out of the USA. We're also joined by our correspondents in Australia and the Middle East this morning. If you had COVID, you're still wearing a mask, and with flu cases on the rise, some have asked, should school camps and big music and sporting events still be going ahead? Professor Michael Baker is live to talk to us about that, and also tensions ran high in Bromley at a fiery meeting as the suburbs' stench saga drags on. Can I please ask the council what gave them the right to shit in my house on a continual basis? Welcome to First Up. I'm Nathan Rarere. Well, as the news cycle continues to throw horrible things at us, we begin this morning in Texas where authorities are investigating the discovery of at least 46 bodies in the back of a truck near the city of San Antonio. 16 others, including four children, are now being treated in hospital. The BBC's Richard Galpin has the latest. Dozens of emergency vehicles tried to get to the abandoned lorry, but many inside had already died. A fire official said 16 people, including four children, had also been taken to hospital. The patients that we saw were hot to the touch. They were suffering uh, from heat stroke, heat exhaustion, uh, no signs of water in the vehicle. It was a refrigerated tractor trailer, but there was no uh, visible working AC unit on that rig. We're not supposed to open up a truck and see stacks of bodies in there. Um, None of us come to work imagining that. The lorry was found in San Antonio, Texas, more than 150 miles from the border between the United States and Mexico. The victims are thought to have been migrants trying to get into the USA. A worker uh, who works in one of the buildings up here behind me uh, heard a cry for help came out to investigate, found a a trailer with the doors partially open, uh, opened them up to take a look and found a number of um, deceased individuals inside. Locals here are shocked that people would be left to die in the heat. Trailers like that without without AC, it's going to get a lease, lease. If it's 100 outside, it goes for about 125 degrees inside without water, without air, without nothing. It's, it's ridiculous. I just, I just can't understand how drivers can do that. But San Antonio is a major transit route for people smugglers, and it's a much disputed issue. Three people are now being held in custody, and the investigation has been handed over to federal agents. That was the BBC's Richard Galpin. Later on in the show, we will cross to the United States. We'll go to Australia now, where census figures show that India is now the third most common birthplace for residents. Joining me now from Brisbane is our correspondent, Pam Corkery. Morena, Pam, how are you? Morena, I've got, I've got, I think I've got the bot. I've got the sword oh, overnight. Well, find out. I'll stick something up my nose shortly. Okay. But oh, more importantly, yes. <laughs> how often have I said that in the yeah. old days? Um, <laughs> now, more important than the Indians outnumbering um, Chinese, but they've outnumbered us. What's We've going gone, on? 
I, I don't know what's happening. Well, you know all this stuff where, um, you know, often right-wing people in New Zealand say, oh, New Zealand doesn't want to go to Australia. It would seem not. Mm. Um, there's there's not been a big increase. So um, there's been some interesting things in the census, though. Um, almost half of the Australians have a, have a parent born overseas. Half of Australians have a parent born overseas. That's a I thought lot, it was just their it? I thought it was just their sports people and their Olympic teams, but it's no, it's, yeah. no, no. It would just seem every everyone I meet in the streets has got a parent overseas. Um, Australia has doubled in size in the past fifty years. This is a nice one. The number of Indigenous Australians registered um, has grown by twenty five percent, and it's because people are feeling more comfortable wanting to identify as Indigenous. Christianity is in decline. For the first time ever, fewer than half of Australians identify as Christians. Millennials are rivaling baby boomers. Now, what are you? You're a Gen X, aren't you? Yeah, Gen X. Yeah, I'm a baby yep. boomer. Well, you and the millennials are just pressuring us no end. And um, more than 8 million Australians have a long-term health condition, the greatest one number being mental health. Oh, which wow. beats out, unbelievably, arthritis and asthma. Wow. But mind you, I can understand that, particularly in obviously oh. what, what the world's been going through the last few years. I think a lot of people uh, but dragged just down. As you, you said before that um, taped piece from the States, the world seems mad, and that is just so sad. It, yeah, it gets you. I see it, why it would happen too. Yeah. yeah. Now, can you yeah. tell me about the mayor of Redland? What, what's this? <laughs> now, she has to resign because she's crashed her car. Why? No, well, she um, she was the Redland is in part of the larger um, Brisbane area. Karen yeah. Williams, she has had to resign from the Brisbane Olympics board after admitting she consumed several drinks before crashing her car, oh. and that was just a short while after she talked online with um, families of people who had been, you know killed by drunk drivers. Anyhow, so she's had to resign from the Brisbane Olympics board, but no one can make her resign as mayor. So this happened last Thursday, and the petitions are growing. This isn't just a Brisbane thing. Peter Dutton's had words to say on it too, because she seems, she just said, no, I'm not going to stand down. But it's she had drank quite a lot. Channel 9 said she was three times over the limit. Um, the police have still said that we'll come out with the results of this. She hasn't been charged yet. But as I'm saying, shortly before this crash, she was in a video meeting with the families of drink driving victims, including one family whose daughter and son-in-law and potential baby, the daughter was pregnant, was killed and the man got a light sentence. And she led a petition to get him a longer sentence. So I'm sorry, mate, when you go out on a limb like that. Yeah. That yeah just you're make... going to have to step down. And there's no remorse, no obvious no. humility. I'll tell you what, Pam, that just made me make the face the whole way through when you were telling me about that. I was like, what? The, yeah. It's particularly the off the back of the videos. It's Look, um, let, let's keep it vehicular and something slightly different here. Why did I see a video on Twitter yesterday <laughs> of a young woman locking herself to a steering wheel in the Sydney Harbour Tunnel? Now, you know, she's two, yes, she was 22. She's a member of Blockade Australia. They're protesting climate change in action, which seems a wee bit weird because the new government is, in fact, hitting all the marks or saying they will. But they are just turning out. Yesterday, a man drove into those annoying <laughs> 
protesters, something I never thought I'd say, but he got off with a light fine. So far, 32 of these protesters have been charged under strike force guard. They love a good strike force in New South Wales. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it just... I can't see the point of this. At the same time, rail workers, nurses, and midwives are protesting. So it's expected like today, Sydney might have half of its transport mobility. But these guys are just annoying from what I can see. They've just sort of run out of mandate, you know, protest steam, and now they've got this. Oh, we're off to that one now. Well, Pam, yeah. look, you go, um, you go jab things up your nose carefully, yeah. carefully. Not up. Remember, it's it's more back across the top of your. More back and around and around. And I around understand. Around. Thank you very much. That's the one. Good on you. Uh, fingers crossed. You. There she is, Pam Corkery, who joins us every week out of Brisbane. If you're listening to us live, it is 14 past five here on First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity. Remember too, you could be listening on the on the podcast, which comes out every day for your convenience. You just find it where you find all your favourite podcasts and go, I'll have that. It's called uh, First Up, the podcast. Today's a, a special day in technology. It's the anniversary of the release of the iPhone. So honesty call, and I don't want the, um, please, we're, we're not writing it on the, well, I don't. Um, this is uh, just the honesty call be honest, what smartphone feature actually steals the most of your time? Because if you've got one, there's the bit you sit there and you're like, yeah, I might just look at What is it? What's the one that always just steals your time? And it's okay if you can hate yourself for it. That's fine. Uh, even if it's, if, imagine being one of those people who uses their phone as a phone. <laughs> anyway, but if you are one of those people, let us know. 2101 or email us first up at rnz.co.nz, perhaps in a massive um, sort of story eating itself, you could do do it from your smartphone. So there we go. We'll go to the Middle East now where delegations from Iran and the USA are meeting to discuss the ground rules for a resumption of official talks to get the 2015 nuclear deal back on track. And joining me now from Doha, where the two countries are actually meeting, is our correspondent, Alex Baird. Morena, Alex. Kia ora, Nathan. Uh, these come across as talks about talks. What are the chances that official discussions begin actually begin anytime soon? Yeah, this is kind of the never-ending story of talking, this one. So it all goes back to the 2015 nuclear deal for Iran, which was all about reigning in Iran's nuclear program. 2018, Trump pulled the United States out, and since then it's been in tatters. There have been talks back and forth. The latest round of official talks was in Vienna, but again, they fell through earlier this year. And now the US is getting back on board, and there are talks about getting the talks back. <laughs> Back, back in the swing of things happening here in Doha now. So a US delegation is meeting with an Iranian delegation to work out how we can start getting these official talks back on the right road. So here's hoping that this never-ending story of talks actually leads to something this time. Talking and talking and talking. Um, this was a horrible... I did see a, a picture of this yesterday. I'm just wondering if you can expand more. It was in Jordan... In the port city, I think it's I think it's pronounced Akaba. You'll be able to pronounce that properly for me. But this it looked like a whole lot of yellow gas coming out of a boat. Tell me about this gas leak. Yeah, you were bang on there. So in the port city of Akaba, here, oh, not here, but over in, in Jordan, a uh, pretty awful thing happened. They were moving a huge tank, twenty-five tons worth of chlorine gas, and they dropped it. And if you see the footage of this, basically you see this bright, bright yellow gas coming out of this tank and just filling the entire area that this fell on in the port. And it's led to 13 people dying and more than 260 people being injured. Just to give an idea to people of how bad this is, this is the gas that 
they were using in the First World War in the trenches. And this stuff is bright yellow and, and is pretty nasty. So if you have access to the internet, have a look. Um, but awful stuff there in Jordan. And, um, yeah, there, there, there's no, no way around it, really. It was a lack of health and safety. And, and it's led to 13 people dying. Oh, it's horrible, horrible. And also, too, the still a big death toll there in Afghanistan. Uh, 1,100 dead uh, from the earthquake last week. Thousands of homes destroyed was what we heard last time. What's the latest? Yeah, so so more than 1,100 dead, thousands of homes destroyed. Now, this has hit a very rural part of Afghanistan. Afghanistan is one of the poorest countries and least urban countries in the world anyway, and it's struck near the border with Pakistan in a province called Paktika. And one of the big issues here is that most people remember the Taliban took over um, took over last year, took over Afghanistan. And now the problem being that a lot of the aid, international aid that had been flowing into in Afghanistan and 75% of the GDP of this country runs off international aid before, it was before the Taliban took over, um, and they can't get any in. It's, it's slowly trickling in, but as we know from New Zealand, when you have earthquakes, you need aid immediately. You need people on the ground. You need people to actually be, to be helping. Um, so this is the, the latest part of this, of this earthquake, is really just getting people on the ground to help. And in the meantime, you have people sleeping out in the open in an area of the world that is increasingly struggling to get itself back on track. Mm. Um, also, uh, this uh, once again, it's a pretty grim start to the day here. 23, po- uh, 23 people killed trying to climb over a fence in the Spanish enclave of Melilla. Where, where exactly is that? There's a bit of grim news out of this region this week, to be yeah. honest. So two Spanish enclaves in Africa, Melilla and Ceuta. So for, most people don't know about these places. They're two kind of city-state size areas of Spain that are surrounded completely by Morocco. Um, Morocco actually claims these and says that Spain has no right to be there. But the the important part of this is that this is the only place in the world and in Africa where the EU border meets African soil. So what you have are especially a lot of sub-Saharan African migrants trying to climb these fences and and are seeking asylum, um, essentially on Spanish soil. And in this in this Latest push this time, uh, more than 2,000 migrants stormed this pretty flimsy border. We're talking a chain mail fence with some pretty nasty razor wire on top. And 23 people have died while trying to cross that fence. A number of people did actually make it across, but it really just shows, I think there's two aspects to this. Um, The first aspect being just how desperate people are in that part of the world to have some respite from the things that are happening, especially in Central Africa. You've got awful things going on in Democratic Republic of Congo and the Central African Republic, some really awful conflicts, and people just want to look for a better better life. And you're also looking at the issue of the EU struggling with more and more people trying to cross into its territory undocumented. Um, and I hate to say it, you're going to see more of this happening. It's been happening for a while. This is just one of the biggest instances we've seen lately, and it's hard to see when and how and if this will actually stop. Mm. Uh, Alex, uh, thank you very much. Uh, again, there is out of Doha. That's Alex Beard. Auckland's iconic farmers building on Hobson Street has had a few incarnations since the department store pulled the plug many years ago, but none of them can compare to this week's featured apartment on Trade Me. Producer Jeremy Parkinson talked with Trade Me's Ruby Topsan about the apartment, which is built where Auckland's children once played while their grandmothers drank tea and ate lamingtons. And another life. It was also the All Blacks headquarters, so it had quite a lot of history there on top of the 
Lymington's farmers' days. This one is a truly ambitious project as described in the listing description there and it, it was actually screened on Grand Designs NZ for anybody that is a fan of the show so they may well be familiar with it already but it was designed by American born architect Roy Lippincott in the 1930s originally and then this has been redone quite recently and with a budget of 3.5 million and it does have this kind of New York loft style feel to it doesn't it those, those are penthouse kind of Views, harbour views, we've got floor-to-ceiling glass. There's a kind of feel to it that feels not so Auckland and and more New York. And not just any New York loft apartment, because some of them can be quite scuzzy. (laughs) This is flash, man. This is like if the... It is just so beautifully done with the uh, old Art Deco style ceilings, moulded ceilings still there. But this most amazing, never saw the Grand Designs program it was on. So it's come as a complete surprise to me that this even exists in the old farmer's building. It really is something special. Yeah, and that black mezzanine staircase is incredible as well. The kind of contrast between the black and the ceiling that you described is, is really quite something. And not only is it four bedrooms, but five bathrooms, just in case like everyone who lives there happens to need to go at the same time, and there's a guest. Uh, so four bedrooms, five bathrooms, and four car garaging. This one is a deadline sale, so tell me what that means. That's coming up for sale by a certain date. That's right, 6th of July for this one, and on and, and this listing there's no price indication, but um, yeah, I imagine a pretty penny for that one. Yeah, man, if they've spent three and a half million building it, they'll want to have a bit more on top of that so yeah absolutely looking forward to seeing how much that goes for and as I said any Aucklanders or New Zealanders of a certain generation will remember the old farmers building and remember how iconic it was and obviously still is. Uh, Our next listing is for, well this is actually quite interesting, this car it's a Ford Country Squire, 1968 Ford Country Squire, the sort of thing that you'd see in the movies and in fact it was used in the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's one of those big American uh, station wagons with the wood panelling look on the side. Tell us about this one. This is uh, one for the movie bus. This, this car was used in the ranch scene in, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and it does come with the invoice for the hire of the car just to prove and make sure that it, you know, it's the right one. So yeah, pretty. I mean, it's actually a beautiful looking car. I love that green and wood combo. And according to the listing description, runs beautifully too. And yeah, what a cool, what a cool little thing to have in in the garage. Little, I don't think little's the right word. It's a monster. <laughs> it's uh, just one of those big, stupid American cars. They want forty six thousand nine hundred and fifty for it, which is approximately twice as much as it would cost to fill it with gas. So good luck to you with that. But it really is a a great example of one of those, as I said, big, stupid American uh, cars from the 1960s. And it's kind of got that, well, it's got that brown wooden exterior panelling on it, which just, you know, just tops it right off. Uh, You know, you're sure to, uh, you know, have heads turn as you're driving that to the mall. Yeah, yeah. I wonder. I do wonder who's going to end up with this one. And good luck to them with those. Yeah, with filling up the tank. They might need that and a leaf or something like a Nissan Leaf in that one. And then this can be their Sunday car. Yeah, I think this one eats Nissan Leafs for breakfast. But there you go. <laughs> I 
like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is the day of our life we all agreed to call the 29th of June. Big day for inventions. Well, inventions to do with apples. On this day in 1975, Steve Wozniak tested Apple One and it worked. What made that uh, interesting was it was the first time that a computer had been basically plugged into a TV screen to generate um you know, what would eventually be the pictures. So that was the home computer uh, this day, 1975. Uh, And then on 2007, I don't know if they tried to do it for an anniversary date or anything, but Apple introduced the smartphone, went on sale, revolutionised the industry. Um, Yeah, 2007 was the day that it made its debut. Um, In World Firsts, on this day in 1990, the first female diocesan Anglican bishop, Dr Penny Jamison, was appointed in New Zealand. Uh, In 1613, it was a day that the the arts really went into special effects here. So during a performance of William Shakespeare's Henry VIII um, at the Globe Theatre, it was destroyed within an hour because they had the bit where the king came on stage and they went, Dave, fire the cannon. So he pulls the cannon, but it actually set fire to the thatched roof of the... um, of the Globe Theatre, uh, just a little aside in my former life of a person who used to MC things, uh, we did that at a movie and it was uh, all, all done like a big disaster scene and they had all these people dressed as fire people and that was really great and then a guy came running in and said, hey you two, you've got to get them out of here and we're like, can we just start the movie and they went, no the place is on fire and we went, yeah good one mate, yeah good, we went, no no the place is actually fire because the roof of the St James they'd basically nailed all the skyrockets onto the top and it had fallen over and the roof had actually caught fire. Um, um, so we were in there for a good 15 minutes with with all these people trying to convince us to get out. Um, a big day for Synergy in the Rolling Stones because in 1967 on this day, Keith Richards was sentenced to a one-year jail term on drugs charges. And also on this day in 1971, Keith Richards was sentenced on drug offences with his friend Mick Jagger. And the birthday champion for today, this will make you feel old, Gary Busey is 78 years old today. And that is the day of our life that we call June the 29th. in life for free but you can give them to the birds and bees I want money Join us now from our business team is that we need you need a, a, a like a Chicago gangster name Nicholas Nicky P pointing <laughs> you like that one yeah that, I'll, I'll, I'll spend the one. rest of the day thinking of a great name for myself <laughs> that you can use for tomorrow okay hey um th- tell me about the this here the, the worrying figures about small businesses mental health yeah it appears that the covid-19 pandemic has led to a surge in mental ill health amongst small business owners and this was a survey that was done by the uh, small business consultant firm MYOB. They tend to do a couple of different surveys of small firms over the year, surveying them about a whole range of maybe business issues, but in this one they really wanted to take the pulse on how business owners are feeling, Mm. especially over the past year. And they found that 39% of people working in a small firm have experienced some form of um, some mental condition. And when you dig into the numbers, that's where it gets quite concerning because 85% reported being affected by stress, 71% said they experienced anxiety, and just over a third said they had experienced depression. And when you look at on the other side of this, you had 15%, or actually, you know, only 10% of firms said they'd actually put in place any mental health initiatives for their employees over the past 12 months. And what that says to me is that the people who are running these firms are so knee deep in what's in front of themselves, Mm. they can't possibly focus on 
you know, the needs and the mental health of their employers because they're really under the pump at the moment. And I guess the thing that's most concerning about this is, you know, you never want to hear about anyone sort of in a situation like this. But if we look at the businesses that have been affected over the past 12 months, it's been those in the retail sector, the tourism sector. There's some upside for them with borders being open, but we are moving into an environment where economic headwinds are stiffening. Hmm. Things are going to get a lot tougher for a lot of people in terms of their own personal finances, but that's going to flow into have flow-in effects for um, for small firms, which make up about like 95% of our economy, you know. So look, I, it's, it's a really concerning result. And MYOB, they just pointed people towards resources that are available at the Mental Health Foundation. One of the other points they make is a lot of the stress that businesses are feeling, often it's the way they are working. You know, mm. so much. We've done so many surveys that suggest that small business owners spend so much time on the admin side of the business, you know, the compliance, the accounting side of things, where look, there's plenty of technology that can maybe help free them up so they can focus on the profit making side of things. But look, that's just one piece of this puzzle and helping yeah. to solve what is a really pressing issue at the moment. It is. Uh, Nicholas, thank you very much for your time. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10 to 7. Let's go to your midweek money markets now. Your New Zealand dollar is buying the following 62.59 US cents, 90.38 Australian cents, 59.39 Euro cents, 51.52 British pence, 4.19 yuan, 85.20 Japanese yen and 14,561.52 Vietnamese dong. Well, there is a lot of excitement about the latest mission to the moon with Aotearoa front and centre. So NASA's capstone satellite was launched last night, I think it was just before 10 o'clock, from Mahia Peninsula, and the University of Canterbury is going to lead a collaboration to use the satellite to gather data, which is basically about space junk. I caught up with the Open Space Agency's James Parr, who was in Silicon Valley, and uh, asked what is hoped is actually going to be achieved by the capstone mission. Well, it's very exciting when they go back to the moon. This is for NASA's Artemis mission. They want to go back permanently, and this means having a space station in orbit around the moon. But to do that, they need to have connectivity between the lunar surface, particularly the poles where Artemis, where the astronauts are going to go, and Houston. Hmm. And so to be able to provide that service, they need to have a space station, which they call Gateway. And to do that, it needs to have very specific angles so it can actually have full connectivity with both the lunar surface and the Earth's surface. So basically, we can have that you know, connection point. So yeah, so they're developing this new orbit. It's called a near rectilinear halo orbit. It's like a big figure of eight. But what it enables the gateway to do is essentially also provide that sort of stopping off point. So it's a little bit like, um, you know, when you used to fly between Auckland and, and Los Angeles, you used to have to stop off in Hawaii. Yeah. The gateway is Hawaii. Ah, okay. So the moon becomes yeah. Hawaii. I like Hawaiian moon. Yeah. That's quite good. So that satellite that's flying around up there, the, the capstone one, they're going to launch, well, the, you know, the Mahia one, it goes up and it's in that figure eight. But is yeah. it scanning the moon's surface? you know the topography or something at that stage or is it all about just connecting up to see that we can get communications happening yeah it's just proving that orbit it's an orbit that we've never done before so it's designing sort of designing a new orbit and then making sure that that can actually service as as planned because of course orbital dynamics that's why it's called rocket science it's really hard to figure out all of the different subtleties and different gravity factors involved and so 
designing that orbit requires a spacecraft to test it, and that's why they're sending the capstone mission. Of course, that's why it's got a very good acronym. I can't quite remember exactly, but capstones are perfect because it's like the building block of the program. So Rocket Labs is testing this, which is amazing because it's you know New Zealand going to the moon, being launched uh, from Mahia. And of course, once they've proved that orbit with a smaller spacecraft, that means they can build the gateway in that, in that orbit. It just blows my mind that that beach I used to just run around on as a kid is, is now Peninsula, where they're launching yeah. rockets. That's crazy. So would Mahia right now, and it's probably not equipped now, but would, would Mahia be equipped to send astronauts to the moon then? Well, I think this is a really good question. I know that Rocket Lab initially did not want to get in the business of astronauts, mm. But the Neutron, which is the new generation spacecraft that um, they're, they're designing, the one that um, Peter Beck ate his hat about if you saw his film, this one is is big enough to be human rated. Because human rating is a big deal, like that, the complexity and um, the checks and balances that NASA put in place for human rating is, is something which even took, you know, Boeing and SpaceX and much bigger organizations and rocket labs. It took, took many years to get to that level of, of trust. Yeah. But you never know. Like that's the thing: is the neutrons will will have that ability. And but I guess the question is, would they be sending them from Mahia, or would they be keeping that capacity in, in the United States? And that's something which I don't know. Actually, I just saw that there were rockets launched from the Northern Territory there out of Australia. Could that be, you know, because we get competitive with Australia? Could they be, you know, perhaps stealing some of this business off of Rocket Labs? And that's a completely different scale. It's a much smaller rocket. It's called a sounding rocket. It just goes into the upper atmosphere. It does not a orbital capacity. Certainly wouldn't be able to go to the moon or anywhere near. Ah! It's. I think. I think it's, it's. It's. I wouldn't say it's a firecracker. Trash rocket. <laughs> <laughs> but. But you know, it's a much smaller rocket, and I think it's only. It, it basically it's a. It does a parabola. It's up in space for about thirteen minutes and then falls down again. You know, but at the same time, like, it's actually pretty cool that. You know, rockets are now getting launched from both Australia and New Zealand. Australia's now really getting serious about space. They've got their own space agency. I know they're launching intelligent spacecraft. They've got a really good imperative to actually start building leadership over there. So that's all good for New Zealand because that means that there's more universities and more resources and more chances for collaboration and I think we should sort of see it as a as sort of ANZAC success. You know, this is this is all um, it's all good for us if Australia's got a, a sort of more motivated space community. That's James Parr. Yes. The professionals of RNZ of the morning report team, Corin Dan is uh, stepping up to bat right now. He takes centre. Kia ora, Corin. How are you? Uh, very well, uh, centre leg perhaps, you know, oh, really? open up the Middle shoulders and yeah. whack it over cow corner, yeah. <laughs> something, something like that. Uh, yeah, it is a pretty busy morning this morning actually. Uh, good morning everybody. Uh, we'll look at uh, power issues, trans power. Uh, we'll be on to talk about the uh, well, the tight power situation, a few warnings they've been issuing, getting through, although there were power cuts, smallish power cuts across uh, Wellington. Uh, last night, so we'll find out what's going on there. They may be that may be unrelated, but we'll uh, certainly find out. Rocket Lab a successful launch, that's good. We'll get yes. more on that. Uh, Air New Zealand with these uh, with its new fancy Dreamliner sleep pod arrangements. We'll get all the details on what that actually means for someone just taking the old economy flight through to London. 
Uh, Christopher Luxon is in. Uh, no doubt uh, more questions uh, ongoing uh, issue around abortion and the party's position there that has dominated uh, politics this week, certainly for him mm. uh, and Simon O'Connor. Uh, the crime survey is out and Oceans uh, Conference 2, which is looking, uh, we'll have David Parker and the Greens' Eugenie Sage, who says the government isn't doing enough to protect our oceans. So that's Crikey. probably about half of it. Pack it all in. There we are. Thank you very much, sir. Here is uh, Corin Dan. Of course, uh, Corin and Susie bring you Morning Report at 6. Emotions ran high at a fiery meeting with residents of the Christchurch suburb of Bromley yesterday around the ongoing stench from its damaged wastewater plant. It was the first of three such community meetings as the Christchurch City Council continues to cop flack for an apparent lack of urgency in fixing the problem at the plant. Can I please ask the council what gave them them the right to shit in my house on a continual basis because that's what I've had to put up with for the last six months. In the middle of the night you've woken up and your house stinks of shit continually. I've I've had to put new down lights in my house, I've had to block up the vent for the bathroom outside to try and mask some of the, the smell. And it's just continuous. Five o'clock in the morning, you're wide awake because yeah. your house smells like someone's shit in it. Yeah. I honestly realise the harm it's causing. I do. I do. But when we were trying to have a meeting, I just asked you to just. Yeah, I understand the meeting. This department has issues with the rubbish collection, issues with the OPP, and now issues with the sewer problem. Our reporter Adam Burns caught up with Christchurch councillors Yanni Johansson and Celeste Donovan after the meeting. I think it's really important to listen to the concerns that people are expressing. The frustration is that a lot of these concerns have been expressed repeatedly over the last several months and people still feel like council needs to do more to deal with the issues that people are facing. Is there a lack of urgency being, I suppose, exhibited from council staff over this issue? Because as you saw, there's a lot of emotion, a lot of tension amongst uh, the locals who have to, you know, have obviously been impacted by the ongoing saga at Bromley. I think that the the concerns expressed are completely legitimate and the frustration of residents possibly hasn't been heard as well as it could be. So I think it's really critically important now that we take action, particularly around addressing some of the sort of social and environmental concerns around wellness and health. So that's really our focus now is to hear what those issues are and make sure that we get action as soon as possible. Is this a problem? Is this an issue that is beyond the capabilities of local government? Does this need higher-up intervention? Well, it needs coordination and a holistic approach across different agencies that have responsibilities in this field. So the Ministry of Health, I mean, the irony of a city like Christchurch being basically forced to temporarily coordinate our water supply on a some sort of risk that the Ministry of Health deemed unacceptable, forcing us to basically spend tens of millions, if not close to $100 million on upgrades to water supply on a theoretical risk when we've actually got harm happening in our community right now from what's been going on at the wastewater treatment plant and we don't have the Ministry of Health or the CDHB at the meeting today and we still don't have a response around a health register. There's some very tangible things that both MSD and Ministry of Health could be doing. Just for example, a few things that could be done. Ministry of Health or CDHB could make for the people in the affected area let them have free doctor's visits, give them an opportunity to go and talk to health professionals. It's all very well saying go to your GP, but if there's a cost, there can be a barrier for people doing that. This was a disaster that happened, and it needs a disaster-type response that's coordinated across 
by central local government agencies working with communities to get the things that are important to people. And I think what you heard today, and you know, it is good that council is actually having community meetings to listen to people, but people want to see action, you know, and they wanted action to happen and they're frustrated that they're having to raise the same sort of concerns around health and wellbeing and lack of urgency that they've raised repeatedly for the last several months. Fix the pipes. It's um, 12 to 6. Let's go to the uh, United States now where um, up to 50 migrants have been found dead inside a truck in San Antonio. Just awful news. One of the worst cases of people smuggling in the country's history um, and at least a dozen, a dozen others including children from what we hear have been taken to medical facilities most suffering from heat stroke. Joining us now from the United States, TVNZ's North America correspondent Anna Burns Francis. Kia ora Anna. Um, thank you very much for, for, for being here for us. Do we know exactly how it happened? Well, we're not quite sure what happened to the truck in the moments leading up to its discovery, but what we do know is that this was sort of on a, it looks like a rural road, but it's actually still within the city limits of San Antonio, and there were some warehouses around. So a warehouse worker uh, was out in the yard, and he heard some noises that he obviously wasn't expecting to hear, looks around and sees a truck, and he noticed that the door was partially ajar. So he's gone over to this truck. Obviously, it's out of place, stopped in the middle of this road. And that's when he's seen a body on the ground. He's uh, rung the emergency services. They've arrived quite quickly, but unfortunately, they've opened up the door to an absolute horror scene, which was, as they've described it, it is, it's not pleasant to, to discuss this, but it was a stack of bodies inside the truck. Oh, that's, that's, that's just absolutely horrible. So, I mean, um, do, do we know um, where they had come from exactly? Well, the most likely scenario in all of these cases, this is certainly the worst in recent history, but the most likely scenario is the border with Mexico, which is just 200 kilometres away. Um, you know, And we are getting more information about uh, who was inside the truck, but obviously they were undocumented migrants uh, who were trying to, as the mayor said, make a better life for themselves in America. This was a journey that is really arduous. It's really difficult. Um, and has taken a long time, and for it to end like this is obviously an absolute tragedy. Anna, I remember a story like this in Britain um, maybe a few a few years ago, in the last four or five years or so, and I know that they got on to trying to trace the truck to see who it was. I mean, what are officials saying? Do they know who the truck belongs to? Yeah, so they knew last night. They had three people that they said they had in custody. They weren't quite sure how they were linked to the truck, but obviously, you know, these are trucks that have to pass through a proper border control. So the driver has some form of ID that's quite carefully checked by border patrol agents. This is San Antonio, Texas, by the way, where the governor has spent a billion US dollars already, what he calls shoring up the border, uh, putting in more guards and more patrols and making more arrests. So they do track these trucks, these movements quite carefully. And the person who's driving that truck is probably an American national because that's easier to get in and out uh, without as much detection. As for the people inside the truck, this morning they've said that 22 of the dead were Mexican nationals, uh, but seven were from Guatemala, two were from Honduras, and there are 19 yet to be confirmed. And I was just thinking about this, the story, it, was, it, just, it made me incredibly sad. And I thought, you know, one of the things that America has loudly projected, particularly through the Trump era, and even after that, is if you aren't from the southern part, if you're from south of the border, you are not welcome here. Like, we'll put up a wall to stop you coming in. We'll make you sneak in in these trucks. Have they found time to show any kind of sympathy for these people? And if they have, does it even come across as sincere? 
Well, look, the border is a very difficult issue for America and for an American president who wants to show more empathy but is basically uh, faced with a border of southern states on his side that don't want a bar of this issue. Their, their resolution is to build a taller wall and put more police in place. So the president has uh, put out a statement today saying it's a tragedy and, you know, what a terrible event this is to have occurred. But there is no more action. And actually, if you're thinking that the Biden administration was more empathetic to the plight of people trying to seek refuge in America, they're not. A lot of those Trump-era policies are still in place. In fact, uh, one of the most notable and one of the few ones to be uh, stood down is that policy of basically separating children from parents. Otherwise, there are a lot of people turned away every day or being banned from coming back to America for having made it through and being caught. So there is not a lot of sympathy for this problem, but certainly in this situation, a horrifying way for people so desperate in such extreme situations to take a risk that has ended like this. Yeah, Anna, uh, thank you very much for your time this morning. Uh, TVNZ's North America correspondent, Anna Burns-Francis. It's, uh, it's, what, seven, six and a half to six, we'll call it there. It's interesting, I was just asking before about uh, what's the feature of your iPhones that get you all your um, smartphones. Uh, Jill Smith in Christchurch says, I love listening to audiobooks. Yeah, love those ones as well. Morena, Joe from Nelson here. My weakness for sure is making collages. Obviously, I want to be a graphic artist. Uh, when my neck aches, my arm goes numb and physically feels a bit nauseous. I know, it's been a bit too long. There we go. Um, well, uh, our hospitals right now, now are heaving under pressure as the country sniffles its way through the first flu season that we've had in two years. COVID isn't going away either. There's more than 8,000 cases reported yesterday. All of this is New Zealand um, gets blasé, I think, about mask use uh, and even events like uh, school camps, concerts and sports events carry on. So joining us now um, to take on uh, navigating winter is the University of Otago's Professor Michael Baker. Kia ora, Michael. How are you? Yeah, kia ora, Nathan. I'm very good. Thanks. Good to hear your voice again. Um, not good, though, to hear 8,000 cases yesterday. So is, is that a true indication in numbers when, when everyone seems to be sick at the moment? Yeah, um, look, this is um, a slight um, increase in the last few days of the moving average, and that's what we always look at. Uh, and that was up to now 5,500 cases. So it has risen over the last week. And I think the other thing is that you know, we've got 350 to 400 people in hospital at any one time. But the thing that really worries me is this 12 deaths a day, this moving average. Mm. And if we think about extending that over a whole year, that would be um, over 3,500 deaths from this um, virus. And that that's, you know, 10 times the road toll. So mm. I think this is a really serious problem. Michael, when we hear about the hospitals being so slammed, is if COVID didn't exist, would they be able to cope, do you think, with the amount of flu cases that are coming in? No, I think, um, as you point out, we haven't had flu for two years, so uh, we are much more vulnerable, and this will be a bad flu season. Hmm. And remember, the, the over winter, um, our hospitals are always struggling uh, because there's not a lot of extra capacity in them I- anyway. And so if you add that increase in, in flu cases over winter, uh, and the flu virus puts typically around two and a half thousand people in hospital every flu season. That's just an added strain that we don't want, and that's why it's so important, obviously, that people get vaccinated. It, three COVID jabs plus a flu jab in a year is is that enough to protect us going into this? Or if you are eligible, should you get the next 
booster? Oh, we, we know of COVID-19 that you have to get that booster to try and stay ahead of the virus. Yeah. Uh, because the reason the virus is coming back is it's uh, evolving to avoid our immunity. And that's the immunity from prior infection and from vaccination. So we need to do everything possible to give us an edge just to minimise the harms from this virus. What Should we be going to a red alert soon, do you think? I think uh, we should consider that. Uh, you know, I'm a, a big supporter of uh, masks. I mean, we don't want to wear masks if we can avoid them. But I think to get through winter, masks have so much to offer because in a way they're a bit like a universal vaccine. They cover us for all COVID-19 uh, types or variants and subvariants for flu, for RSV and the other respiratory viruses. And they're most effective if everyone is wearing them in an indoor in, uh, situation. So I think we need to bring back the mask mandate for our schools, for yeah. all our school students at the moment. What, actually, good point. What about things like school camps and school assemblies, etc.? Well, again, I think any time you put lots of people indoors at the moment, they need to be wearing masks. I mean, unless it's just your family at home or something. Uh, so I think the, the school environment is very important because obviously you have people from all different families uh, thrown together for many hours every day indoors. And uh, I think that's a, a, an ideal situation for the virus to spread and that we, we need to have a barrier in the way. And really the only barrier that means the kids can keep going to school and everything, which is so important, is mask use. Yeah. Just very quickly, how scary is this new Californian variant that I'm hearing about? Uh, look, I, I'm not sure how distinct that is. I mean, the US is just coming out of its fourth wave and it's seeing the same succession of uh, variants that we're seeing in New Zealand or starting to see more of. So um, I don't know that they're, they're just subvariants of Omicron. They, they're like the other ones, but they just, um, the new ones obviously escape some of our existing immunity. So mm. I think that is what we're going to see more of over the next few weeks and months. Yeah, well, it's um, wonderful to hear your voice again. Stay safe. There is Otago, or sorry, University of Otago Professor Michael Baker. Yeah, mask up. Um, from what we hear from our mate Space James, uh, he's at a, a conference there in Silicon Valley, and he said, well, yeah, we all got here, and now everyone's had to isolate in their rooms, uh, so be careful for it. Morning Report is next with Susie and Corin. Remember, you can listen to the first up whenever you like. Just download the podcast. It's there for you. Otherwise, uh, join us back tomorrow morning from 5am when First Up is back in your ears.